coming up on the show, I've got author and activist Arno Michaelis. And uh, Arno is a former white supremacist who's done a complete 180 and now helps people leave hate organizations and extremist organizations. And uh, this is obviously going to be a little bit of a departure from my usual interviews because I've had a lot of musicians and entertainment people on. Um, but I have had some authors on the show on the in the past, and I'd really love to do more episodes like this one. So we're going to delve into Arno's story, and then I get his opinions on a lot of topical things going on right now with our media, politics, and race. Uh, and now these are just two men's opinions, and they don't represent everyone's view. And you may agree with some of the things we say, and you may disagree with some of the things that we say. But I think you'll find the conversation educational and very interesting. I know I did. And we barely scratched the surface on some of these topics. So trigger warning, we talk about some very serious things, adult topics here. So listen at your own discretion. Well, please welcome Arno Michaelis to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Chuck. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, this is exciting. I've read, uh, I just finished your second book. I read both your books and uh, some, some overlapping things in, in both of them, but there's definitely in the second one, the gift, the gift of our wounds, I believe it's called, right? Yeah. So the second one, there's like, you go into more detail, with some other things and uh, they're both just really fascinating books. People should definitely check them out. So I'm wondering if, for what we can do is maybe just kind of do like an abbreviated uh, version of your life story to kind of ex- explain to the audience kind of where you're coming from. Sure. So uh, today I best described as a storyteller, and I do that uh, mainly in speaking engagements, also a good idea, a good amount of consulting and uh, educational stuff. I I work uh, a lot of corporate sector things, Mm -hmm. um, but also do stuff in middle schools, high schools. I work with uh, law enforcement at all levels. And uh, the main focus of my storytelling is to connect human beings and help people see that we have a lot more in common than different. And I I do that because I believe it's the most effective means of combating violent extremism. And I, everything I do is informed by my past as a violent extremist from 1987 to 1994. I was involved in white power skinhead groups. I was a a leader and an organizer of those groups, as well as a uh, lead vocalist for a a white power metal band that was very popular at the time. And the the harm that I've done back then is something that I'll carry with me for the rest of my life. And and really, uh, it drives me to try to bring about a world where people don't commit that kind of harm and, and again, see themselves and others and see others in themselves. Yeah. So now is this your full-time thing? Are you still doing the IT stuff as well or? No, I, I moved on from IT. Uh, it it was kind of a gradual phase out kind of, kind of thing. Uh, I was an independent IT consultant. So being my own boss, I was able to, uh, make a living while kind of developing a, a career and, and really a, a, a purpose as a, as a activist and as a peacemaker. So I went public with my story uh, about being a former white nationalist in, on the MLK holiday of 2010. 
And uh, that kind of marked the, the new phase of my life. Um, I started doing IT independently in 2001. So uh, they overlap by about three, four years. And uh, nowadays, the only IT I do is, is for myself, pretty much. Okay. So this is your full-time thing. So if we go back a little bit with your story, it's so interesting because I think people have these stereotypes of of white nationalists or white supremacists and, and how they became the way they became. But uh, I know you had some trouble as a child, but relatively kind of a normal childhood. Am I wrong? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And it, it is an interesting point to make because uh, as you, as you said, a lot of people, if they see someone in the Ku Klux Klan or a neo-Nazi, they think, um, you can think a range of things. A lot of people think, mm-hmm. well, that person's just a monster. And society would be better off if, if they weren't around. Um, and you can't blame anybody for feeling that way. But a lot of people would, would also assume that um, someone mixed up in, in that kind of thing was like taught to think that way by their parents uh, and or came from a really rough background with a lot of adverse childhood experiences. And it, it's been my findings working in, in the field of counterviolent extremism internationally for over a decade, that in most cases that that's true. Uh, to put it very simply, hurt people hurt people. And I've, I've never seen an instance where someone who had a, a, a good sense of uh, who they are and their own value as a person was moved to hate and hurt other people. It, it, the, the hate comes from trauma. And it, it comes from suffering. So um, I, I have a lot of colleagues in this space. We all call ourselves formers, as in former violent extremists, and not just former white nationalists. I, I have a lot of friends who are former jihadis. Uh, one of my closest friends is a former Antifa from Denmark, and him and I would have tore each other limb from limb 30 years ago, but now we're, we're best of friends. Wow. In, in every instance, uh, talking with these guys, you, you hear about their childhood trauma, which um, in most cases was a lot more uh, egregious than mine. I I grew up in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. My parents were together. They both loved me very much. They let me know that at every turn. But my father's alcoholism put a lot of pressure on my mom. Uh, We were literally living beyond our means the whole time I, I grew up. And uh, my dad did more drinking than working all too often. And, and my mom would have times have to work two jobs to keep the lights on, the bills paid. And it just, it, and her relationship with my dad sucked. My, my dad wasn't abusive, but it, you know, when you're, you're partying all the time and, and your wife's trying to keep things, keep things running, um, it, it, the, the financial stress, uh, drives a lot of arguments and, and uh, stress in, in the household. And so I, I just grew up seeing my mom suffer. And that was my pain point. But but Because you didn't point. suffer, right? You said your dad was a happy drunk. And he never, <laughs> so he never like. I, I always call him a fun drunk. Yeah. Uh, he, he was, and he still is. <laughs> he, uh, my, my dad is a, a certified gun nut. And uh, we had a, a gun room in our basement where he, you know, not just a gun safe, he had a whole room for his guns. And we had a pistol range actually in our basement. And uh, as, as soon as I could hold a, a pistol, we were down there 
shooting it and, and point off at it like midnight on a night when mom has, is working two jobs. Weren't and, you like lighting fireworks off and stuff? Like it's yeah, not- fireworks were a big, uh, big thing. There, there was one, there was many fireworks incidents, but um, the one that comes to mind was, I think I was in sixth or seventh grade and I had a buddy spending the night and my dad had just come back from up North Wisconsin with a huge, uh, cachet of illegal fireworks like ball rockets and uh roman candles things like that and uh, we're all lighting them off in the backyard and my dad has his buddy over and they're both like rip roaring falling down stupid drunk and i i don't even know who started it but somebody aimed a roman candle at, at another guy and real soon it broke out to me and my buddy against my dad and his buddy and seeing as that we were kids and very nimble and sober, we, we were literally kind of running circles around them, uh, blowing them up with bottle rockets and Roman <laughs> candles. And, yeah, was, <laughs> That's good. Well, and so isn't that interesting? It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about your childhood because wasn't there a point uh, where your, uh, your school tested you and said, hey, this kid's really bright. You need to let him like you know, expand his wings and like maybe did maybe your parents let you have a little too much freedom? Cause it sounds like you kind of went crazy for a while. <laughs> that, that could definitely, you could definitely make a case for that. <laughs> um, a, a lot of times when I talk about my childhood, a lot of people are like, you just need a good ass whooping is, is what you need. <laughs> there is that theory. Yeah. I, I, I don't believe violence is a way of, of teaching anybody anything, no, especially but, not children. But, right, but so maybe some more stricter boundaries. And, and Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think um, that that could have been beneficial in my childhood. Uh, it was actually a pediatrician who, who told my mom that uh, what a gifted genius I am and that I, I should be allowed to run amok and, and explore my gifted geniusness. But um, and, and I think my my dad being a kind of a wild, smart, gifted genius guy himself and, and uh, not real uh, comfortable with like rules and boundaries put on him. Uh, you know, it, it translates. You, you get uh-huh. uh, your your parents raise you as who they are. And um, that combined with just my, my personality type and my uh, that whole nature nurture combination. It, right. it, 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 it created this real kind of wild kid, but um, it was the, the suffering that kind of sent it in a dark direction. Right. So because you didn't grow up with hate. In fact, I think I, I read about you going to like a run DMC concert in the 80s, which is <laughs> awesome. And you were involved with like you were hanging out with like the breakdancing kids. And so then explain this story to my audience, because this kind of seems like if I would say there's one moment that kind of like got you angry it was this moment where you got bullied on the playground or whatever. Yeah. So I, in the, it, it was about sixth grade for me, which was uh, early 1980s. And I, I, I was also really kind of to this day, I'm kind of adverse to, to trends and whatnot, but I, I did often find myself at the forefront of trends. And, and I, I did in my, um, tween years in that I, I was one of the first like suburban white kids to get into hip hop and uh, black culture and whatnot. And I, and I was into breakdancing and I, and I did see Run DMC in uh, 1984, I believe. Uh, saw Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I, I was really like super into that scene and then got kind of 
discouraged when it became trendy, but the, the incident that you're talking about was, um, I believe happened in seventh grade in that, uh, I, I had my little breakdance crew and we'd like kind of dip out of the, the suburb and head into the city on Saturday nights and go do breakdance battles at a, a roller rink. And, uh, the fashion at the time for, you know, if you had like white people hair was, uh, having a little rat tail in the back. And so I, I had that rat tail going. It was probably about six inches long. I, I dipped it in peroxide and had a little, you know, blonde streak at the end. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty fashionable. And, uh, I, I was throughout my life. This has always kind of been the case. Like very few people don't know who I am as far as, you know, in whatever circle I'm in and, uh, in, in school, like everybody knew who I was and they either loved me or hated me. There was very few people that had like a, a neutral opinion on me. Hmm. And, and I, I was an asshole. I, I was a, a bully <laughs> since I was a little kid. I, I definitely, um, again, like I said, I don't think violence is a way to teach things, but at the same time, I kind of had this coming and, and what, what came was, was, as I, I'm kind of prancing around school with this breakdance crew and getting the attention of a lot of girls, uh, the, the whole like jock scene were it, it really kind of like getting fed up with me. And, um, I had bullied a, a few of those guys before. And at the same time, like I played football with them. I, I was always kind of able to traverse all these various cliques in school. Like I wasn't a jock, but I, I played sports and I knew all the jocks. I, I wasn't um, like a full on nerd, but I, but I was still into nerdy things and I hung out with the nerds that would later go on to like the punk scene and, and whatever. But um, in seventh grade, these jocks were pretty sick of my bullshit and they decided they're going to teach me a lesson. So they all, kind of sidled around until they were surrounding us on the playground. And I didn't really notice because me and my guys are all doing our, our breakdance ciphers. And all of a sudden the, the jocks all jumped on me and I realized one of them had a scissors. And so it, it became this really violent kind of scramble of me trying to fight off. I don't know how many guys, but ultimately they got my hands separated from my tail and, uh, one of them took a scissors out, snipped it off, but I remember he's like holding it in the air like a trophy, like I got it, I got it. And then they all kind of disappeared. And I, I looked up and all my guys had disappeared also. Hmm. And I and I was uh I I was utterly like humiliated and uh felt violated. It was it was really probably the most traumatic moment I had endured in my life to that point and a, a lot came out of that and one of them being that i i felt like kind of betrayed by all my my breakdancing crew um i i don't know that i really put like a, a racial spin on it at that point mm -hmm. but uh i i think it, it would be fair to say that there may have been some like underlying feelings after that like yeah these guys are supposed to have my back and they didn't um, I, I don't know that I consciously extrapolated that onto to all Afro-Americans, right. uh, but, but I, I think later on it, it, it may have been some of that that surfaced, but, but really the big driver for me getting involved with white nationalism was just because it pissed people off. Right. Cause isn't that what happened? So then you started getting into punk and then that was what, what punk was all about was just, it's not like you went to join white supremacy right after that, but it was like, 
the punk movement was all about rebelling and that's what you were drawn to it was more it was more about pissing people off and that was a way to piss people off was with swastikas and racism and things because that it wasn't that you really believed the uh, the propaganda at, at least at that point right exactly yeah yeah it, it was it, you nailed it it was definitely like to me punk was about breaking shit and pissing people off yeah. Like I, I just, I, I wanted the, the most drastic means of lashing out and repulsing civil society that I could dig up. Um, and, and to give you an idea, like as a punk rocker, I, there was one summer at summer camp, I met some kid from Milwaukee who was a big headbanger and he was like into Slayer and Venom and Exodus. And I turned him into like him on to like agnostic front and the Cro-Mags and fear. And like, we're all like, Oh, this is, we're both like really delighted at the, our, our kind of exchange of, of heavy music. <laughs> um, and, and I, again, like I, I love slayers cause like how fast and hard they were and just like, rah, the, the adrenaline rush you get from it. But I, it, even that the guys in the band, from what I know, were very like tongue in cheek with all the Satanism stuff. And, and I, I like got into that also. I wasn't like, oh yeah, Satan's a real thing. I'm gonna go sacrifice a dead baby or something. But it was like, wow, people get really pissed off if you put an upside down cross on you. And and actually, one of my first tattoos was a big upside down cross that said "Amen" above it. And and this is when I was a punk rocker. And and I also to match in, in shop class, I made a big upside down cross earring about this big, which. Uh, was short lived. It got ripped off in a, in a mosh pit a couple months later, but that it, it just kind of, it, it shows this pattern of like, Oh, here's a way to really piss people off. Put an upside down cross around. Oh, this is awesome. Oh, you think an upside down cross pisses people off. Try a swastika. Wow. Now they're really pissed off. And, and so that was kind of the progression that led me to white nationalism. It was, it was really more for the shock value than um, the ideology itself initially. Yeah. And then didn't you also, you started drinking at 14 and you said that was like pouring gasoline on the fire that just made you more destructive and lash out. And, and then didn't you start to like, you kind of like seeking out fights and things, right? Yeah. I, so I did start drinking. When I was 14. Um, it was actually a aforementioned heavy uh, headbanger kid. I, I was drinking with, there was a, appropriately enough there's like a graveyard in milwaukee where the kids would go party and so here we are out there uh him in his slayer jacket and <laughs> my agnostic front you know ripped up t-shirt and uh i think we had like an eight pack of low and brow or something and i i i had like probably three four beers and passed out uh but it was definitely like as soon as i started drinking i went from zero to alcoholic uh it was I, I come from long lines of alcoholism on both sides of my family. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of genetically predisposed to as, as soon as I started drinking, it was like, boom, alcoholism. And, and I had been violent since I was a little kid. So violence is something I was very accustomed to. And you add the alcohol to the violence and, and then, yeah, I would go out and get in fights in the street. Um, I, I, I'm a big dude and like people are to this day, find my physical presence kind of intimidating but like it, and i was as a kid also but i i've never been very coordinated or like very fast so when i go to get in fights i get my ass kicked as, as often as i kick anybody else's ass but it, it was really like not about winning the fight it was just about uh experiencing the violence okay so you're hanging out with these punks so then it's just kind of like you gradually start meeting more people who are more into the 
deep into this like white nationalist movement and then you start like living with them, right? Yeah, I, I actually uh, had a friend named Jane who was kind of like OG punk queen of the, the Milwaukee scene. And uh, she started driving a tour bus for the Cheetah Crow motherfuckers. And she drove this bus like all from the Midwest to the, uh, and it was the big van. And she gets out to the East Coast. And by the time she's out there, like Cheetah Chrome were like real live, filthy, stinking punk rockers. And just like she couldn't stand and being in a van with these guys who never bathed and like were just <laughs> <laughs> like really living the whole disgusting, crusty punk uh, ideal. And so she bailed from the tour in New York. She met some like kind of, so a lot of things that a lot of people understand is like the whole skinhead thing from the get go wasn't necessarily racist like the original skinheads were came about in the late 60s early 70s in the uk and it was more of like a reaction to the kind of mod scene so like if you see old like videos of the who or the rolling stones and they have this flashy hair and clothes and they're kind of posh and pretty boy like skinhead counterculture was was a reaction to that they were like working class kids who had nothing <laughs> they were all football hooligans they shaved their heads so you couldn't pull their hair in a fight and they listened to reggae and mm -hmm. like uh, they, they included uh like pakistani immigrants and immigrants from the west indies among them and it wasn't until the late 70s that uh actual fascist party in britain called the national front started seeing the potential for like a brown shirt among the the skinheads so they started telling these skinheads like yeah the, the reason why you don't have a job is because of that pakistani immigrant he's not your friend he's a problem he's got to go enough of them bought into it that this whole offshoot of the skinhead color culture came about that was in like blatantly racist and and as i was kind of progressing through the punk scene um jane meets some of these kind of nationalist but not racist skinheads in new york she adopts the kind of look and the, the, the boots and braces and what's not starts making her way back. She comes through Chicago connects with the Chicago area skinheads, which to my knowledge were the first racist skinhead crew in the United States. They play a uh, screwdriver for her, which is like one of the seminal skinhead bands. And she, it just like that, that kind of took her by storm and she brought the tape up to Milwaukee, played it for me and uh, for her then boyfriend, later husband, Pat O'Malley. And we were just right away. We're like, this is awesome, man. Like where has this been all our lives? This is what we got to get into. And, and at the time there was already kind of a, a like a political skinhead kind of mass growing in, in the Milwaukee scene. And when you added screwdriver to the mix, it caused like a bunch of us said, okay, we're white power skinheads. We're the real skinheads. Everybody else are baldies. And the other guys were like, yeah, we're not Nazis. You guys are the fake skinheads. And, and yeah. there was a bunch of fighting and whatnot. But that that's, that's huh. basically how it all started to splinter. So was there somebody that kind of, for lack of a better word, was kind of like your mentor as a white supremacist that like indoctrinated you? Because I know that you would later indoctrinate people with books and things. And like, what kind of literature did they get to give you Mein Kampf or like, what? I don't know what, what do they... How do they, like, what do they teach you? It's just. Yeah, it, it's, well, it, and there, there definitely was, like, entry points like that. It, and it's funny because I, I, I've i been a voracious reader my entire life. And, and I, um, 
had already read a ton of books by the time I was 14. And so when I get into like, I'm a neo-Nazi now, I got to read Mein Kampf. And I, we stole an English translation of it from the library. And I, I couldn't even get through half of it because it was just so <laughs> poorly written. And it was just like, a, this isn't like doing a whole lot to like make me into okay. this ideology. No, it wasn't like you read that. that book and it was like, oh, this is so inspiring. Yeah, and, not at okay. all. It was, the, the book was like a miserable failure in, in uh, like getting me to buy into the ideology. But what, what did happen was, um, we, uh, our, our first effort at like outreach was like, we're going to have a, a hotline and, uh, we, we arranged some kind of voicemail thing where people could call and we'd put a message on there, some racist rant and, and then they, they would leave a message for us. And most of the messages were really hostile and we were, at, we were actually using our own, the address to our dwelling as our like mailing address, like for more information right to blah 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 and we had our, the address of where we lived and so we started getting bricks through the windows and uh <laughs> and we're like oh and 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 again this is just like kind of the whole thing works like you go out and you you offend all these people you say all this horrible shit you do things mainly to repulse people and then when they react as you are trying to provoke then you turn it around and go oh we're persecuted we can't even like talk about how much we love our race without our windows being broken. And so now we're, we're oppressed because right. we're, we're, we're basically uh, seeing the, the effects of, of our actions really. But it, as, as all this is happening, there was uh, one particular guy in Milwaukee uh, who, and it was like this old Polish guy from the South side. We, we later met him in person, but he got a hold of us right away. And he's like, you know, yeah, I, I I think you guys are doing a great thing there, but you gotta get a a, a post office box. You can't <laughs> you can't use your home address. We're like, okay, well that, that's a that's good advice. Um, so that was one of the the first things we did there, and then it was through people like him that we were turned on the literature, like by George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the founder of the American Nazi Party in the sixties, and. Um, Rockwell, who was later assassinated by one of his own guys, in a, which is a very common thing amongst organizations that uh, revolve around hate and violence, go figure. Hmm. But um, Rockwell was was really smart, and, and he had like a really wicked, biting sense of humor, and he used satire in a lot of his writing. And uh, his books, I thought, were great. I I was just like, wow, you know, yeah, that, and you can like liken. Uh, Rockwell to like one of today's pundits, you know, who has a show and and just shoots zingers at the other side all day mm-hmm. and, and makes them look stupid. And um, he he was kind of along that vein, although you know, in a very blatantly racist, anti-Semitic way. Um, so it, it was kind of these old guard not Nazis and, and Klansmen who would see us, you know, making noise after decades of relative quiet in, in the white nationalist scene here's all of a sudden there are these young skinheads who are you know burly street fighting guys they want to um, shake things up and so a lot of these guys are really excited to see us emerge um but the ones who like there, there were some who tried to like waltz in and just assume command of us and and they they got their asses beat with every along with everybody else the the smart ones would just kind of like uh, kind of 
connect with us from a, an arm's length um, and provide us with literature and things like that. Uh, and it, and it, the, the ones who we had ongoing relationships were the ones who were smart enough not to try to boss us around. Are these books, a lot of these books and things that you guys read, are these books banned now or are they still out there somehow for, cause there's still these organizations out there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know that the books are uh, banned. I, I, you know, I, I hope they're not, I I'm not one for banning books and I, I do hold a, the first amendment in very high regard, but um, I, I would imagine it's, it'd be harder to get them. Well, I don't know. Cause it, you'd probably get copies online or what, but yeah, there, there's a whole, uh, you know, reading list of, of, uh, beyond, uh, the, the writings of Rockwell, there was stuff by, uh, like William Pierce and other like more, uh, contemporary neo-Nazi type guys who had done a lot of writing. And, and those were the things that we kind of gobbled up. It's just so weird. Cause you think like, I mean, so many things are being banned that are even like fringe racist or things like that. And then also like, I remember like reading your book, you go to this one of these organizations, a uh, party, and the guy's wearing a full Nazi uniform. I'm like, where does he even get that? I mean, it's just so bizarre to me. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, it, it, there, a lot has certainly changed um, between the late '80s and now. A lot hasn't changed. Uh, the 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 core belief of white nationalism is fear. And, and separatism it, it just saying like, well, because we have less melanin in our skin, we're better and, and uh, at war with everyone else. And, and, and at the same time, threatened by everyone else. Um, the anti-Semitism is, is a really strong common thread. I, I recently worked with a, a brilliant woman, um, Ali Furvig at Ocean City College, who runs the Holocaust uh, education effort there, it, it, she had called anti-Semitism the oldest hatred, and I, I, that really resounded with me. I, I think uh, for thousands of years, uh, Jews have been blamed for everything going wrong with the world, from droughts to to the Black Plague up to COVID, and and it's it's nothing new to to blame Jewish people for. Uh, whatever's going wrong in a person's life or, or in the world in general. Um, th those things are all the same, but, well, what is different uh, to a degree is uh, the, just the, the look and, and the actual, like, you know, what does a white nationalist look like nowadays versus what did one look like in the late eighties and then versus what did one look like in the sixties and or the thirties in Germany or whatnot. But yeah, I, we, we did, um, meet some guys in in michigan who uh fashioned themselves as like a, a new school ss unit and i i don't know if they got it from army surplus stores or whatever but they all That's had bizarre like, yeah they had the, the the straps and the armbands and the hats and all that and the, the whole thing kind of struck me as kind of homoerotic um <laughs> and I, I i don't know how, how much uh they, they, going back like back to hitler's days um there, one of Hitler's early brown shirt guys was a guy named Ernst Ruhm, who uh, basically led the brown shirts to um, put Hitler in power. And then it was revealed that uh, Ernst was a, a closeted homosexual and uh, he was executed because of it. And, and that wow. that's also a repeating theme. Um, you, you see Is that people... part of your the, the, the group that you were in, were they anti uh, homosexual as well? 
Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. We we saw. So I, I, I was. <laughs> you gotta understand the context for this. I, I was. This happens to me. I was like out at a, a a meal in New York with a real diverse bunch of friends, and someone asked me a question like this, and I just like said the answer, and a, a server walks by, <laughs> heard me say it, and they're like, "What?" The? So, like, if you ask if we were opposed to homosexuality, I say, yeah, we were. We believed that homosexuality was like a tool of the Jews to destroy the white race by keeping us from breeding and keeping us, huh. making us into sissies and taking away our will to fight. And, and again, it's it's you you blame like kind of a, a natural fact of human life, um, which is various expressions of gender and sexual identity. And uh, you you twist it and you make it part of this big conspiracy to to kill you and everybody who looks like you. So that that was how we we viewed uh, homosexuality. And and what the result is is, is you get people. It, I I'm hopelessly like in the vaginas and whatnot, but I, I have a lot of gay <laughs> friends who you know talking with them. I understand what it, it's it's a really difficult experience to be closeted to like not be able to express uh, who you're attracted to and i I'm, I'm that's one thing that i'm really inspired by nowadays in that that's um not a big deal whereas when i was in high school it was just unthinkable for two guys to be walking down the hall holding hands or going to prom together and nowadays i've, I've done i've talked at schools where the principals like brag about yes we have openly gay couples walking down the hall holding hands um but it, going back to being closeted, we had a guy in our group who joined who was like really hateful and angry. He wanted to beat the shit out of people. He's he's constantly going off about faggots. And all of a sudden it's revealed that it, I, I forget what the the reveal was, but it was somehow, you know, somebody talked to someone who made out with him or something. And when we find out that this guy was gay like he got the shit kicked out of him wow. and that and then he was kicked out of the group and so that 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 theme was also repeated in our group with a guy who was jewish who like joined the group like vehemently hated jews and all of a sudden it, it turns out like well he was actually jewish and that's why and he has this sense of self-loathing that he doesn't know how to process and how to deal with it so he just like jumps into the self-loathing like 500% and actually joins a group that, that hates who he is. So, right. And didn't, cause didn't you find out like midway through this uh, uh, organization that you're in, you, that you're one sixteenth native American. Yeah, that was, uh, how do you, do you don't get kicked out for that or well, you don't the, tell anybody or this? Yeah. First of all, I only told like a couple people and, um, what, what happened was, was I, it was a, it was Thanksgiving of 89 and I was uh, at Thanksgiving dinner with a, a skinhead girl girlfriend and I think I was 18 and she was like 19 or so and we were both rip roaring drunk when we show up. Um, Thanksgiving was always a pretty dysfunctional event in my family. Uh, typically it would just be my mom and my grandma who were the only ones sober and then uh you know, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, like they're all wasted. And in this context, I'm at the Thanksgiving dinner table going on about the white race and how we're all threatened and everybody's got to mobilize. And my mom kind of stops me and she's like, well, Mr. Nazi, 
did you know that your great grandpa Bordo was, uh, you know, Arcadian and he was uh, French Canadian uh, Native American. So like you have Indian blood in you. And I was like, that's not true. You're a liar. And I, I would stop and out of off of Thanksgiving dinner uh, went back to this hovel that we lived in and I locked myself in the bedroom with a case of uh, really cheap beer and glass bottles. And I worked my way through the case until I got drunk enough to break one of the bottles and carve my wrist up with it. Uh, my girlfriend later like kicked down the door after I was passed out and she uh, had the presence of mind to bind my wound and stop me from bleeding out. And, and then the next day, I wrote a letter to uh, like a big honcho in the white nationalist movement back then. And I, I basically said, like, I, I want to die. Like my race is all I have. I, I can't believe that I'm not a pure blooded Aryan white man and all this. And, and he wrote me back right away saying that I was a good pure blooded Aryan white man. And that if I had a nosebleed, I'd lose my Indian blood and that it, it shouldn't concern me and uh that i should keep going fighting for the white race and i and i kind of like kept that letter as like my my past like if anybody okay. got in my face about it uh, but I, I did keep it pretty quiet there there was a couple older guys in the group uh that i i was tighter with than than anyone else and i i did kind of let them know about it after i had the letter okay of course and so i could be like well you know this happened and but and and then but i have this letter from uh you know, Tom Metzger and he says that I'm good. I'm cool. So, you know, full speed ahead. Um, the irony, the, the funny part of all of it is that uh, a couple of years ago, I got a 23 and me done and I, I have absolutely zero indigenous people. <laughs> whatsoever. I was going to say, did you ever get the DNA test? Cause now you can get those. Okay. Yeah, so, I, I, but I, either I, way, there's so, there's so many fallacies with this organ, with this, um, oh, yeah. uh, with these theories and one, one of the things that would really like, this is where like, I'm out. Cause like it's, you said that you could not watch football. Like you couldn't watch Packer Correct. games. You couldn't listen to the beastie boys. You couldn't watch Seinfeld. Like, are you kidding me? Like, oh, cause I wondered not. that Seinfeld. I was like, how extreme are these organizations? Like, do they just think like, okay, well, white people are better than this stuff, but we can still, you know, enjoy this culture, but we're better than that. But it was like, no, you weren't even allowed to enjoy the culture at all. Well, and it's again, it's like, what we say and what we do are, are two different things. Um, but it was basically like the, the way nowadays you hear a lot of people use the phrase virtue signaling, which mm -hmm. I, I'm not a big fan of. And it's ironic because most of the people who bitch about virtual signaling are virtue signaling themselves by <laughs> saying, I don't virtue signal, yeah. but, but you are virtue signaling by saying that, but it, it's, it's an apt phrase when talking about this, because it's basically like, if I'm with a bunch of skinheads, the way that I show them how down I am is to like, oh, the Packers, you know, that's that's part of the plot to destroy the white man. They want to dumb us all down so they can more easily oppress us by by numbing our mind with these stupid sports teams that have black men and white men on the same team, like being friends with each other. It's it's all a plot to kill the white people. And, and the more like pissed off I am about it, and the more I bitch about it amongst hmm. this group. Uh, that's how that's how I'm signaling how how down for the cause. Your virtue signaling within exactly. white supremacy. That's an interesting exactly. idea. Exactly. Okay. And, and then, but then, of course, on Sundays, 
like every chance I, I got, I'd sneak away from my guys and I'd like watch <laughs> the Packer game real low. And I, it's so to, funny that you did that. You had to sneak to watch the Packers. That's it's, so interesting. It's ridiculous. It, it, yeah. and this would happen over and over again. I, I, uh, there was a saying amongst in the, the white nationalist ideology where they'd say, if you look at the, the credits to a TV show or a Hollywood movie, it reads like a Tel Aviv phone book. And, and this kind of like plays into the conspiracy theory of like, oh, we know that Jews run Hollywood and Jews run TV and everything that you see on TV and everything you see coming out of Hollywood. And this, of course, would extend to professional sports and music and whatever else is all part of this Jewish plot to kill all the white people by, by uh, diminishing our racial consciousness and and not uh and like stopping us from organizing as a race to to work in, in for our common interests like mm-hmm. this is all part of how they do that um i i recall we were i was at like a paramilitary training thing in the carolinas when i was 18 and we had a night off and we were at a gas station where they had some movies for rent back in the day when you'd rent a vhs tape and things like that and one of my all-time favorite movies i've ever seen is blade runner and they had it there, and I'm like, "Oh, you, we got to get this movie, guys! Like, let's get this movie and watch it." And I, I really just wanted to get lost in the movie that night. And as soon as we pop it in, the guys I'm with are like, "You know, Harrison Ford's a Jew, right? His real name's like Shlomo Rabinowitz, and he changed it, and he's a Jew, and they're a Jew, and everybody in this movie's a Jew." And I'm like, "Can't you just mm. shut up and watch the movie?" <laughs> like, this is <laughs> right, yeah. Couldn't. Like the whole time huh. we're watching this movie, I, I'm hearing about it. We ended up having to turn it off. And then I got shit for that for like years later. Like, oh, Arno loves, uh, he loves Jews because he loves Blade Runner. And, and I'm just like, but at the time like, I tried yeah, dancing around it, but. but That's got to be so hard to avoid movies and, and <laughs> sports and culture, the music. I mean, there's so much great stuff out there that's eclectic of so many different things. Totally. So besides that fallacy, then there's the other fallacy of like, the real people that you interact with you're, you're working yep. in this t-shirt company with uh, minorities and stuff. And they're like really nice to you. And, but you're, you're supposed to try to hate these people like because they're a minority, but like, you're like, they're really nice to you, even though they know you're white supremacist. Exactly. And that was really as difficult as it was to like bear my, my own glaring hypocrisy of enjoying Hollywood movies and sports and things like that. Um, what really drove it home more than anything else is when I had actual interactions with other human beings who were people that I, I claimed to hate who refused to play by my rules. And that, that's something that I, I think is, is really poignant. And, and I'm afraid it's getting lost way too often um, in today's discourse when we talk about racism in that um, in, in more irony uh when i was a white nationalist and years into it some like really hardcore guy who was like a terrorist basically and and saying you know we all need to just disconnect ourselves from our loved ones and start robbing banks and blowing things up this guy told me that i had to read sun tzu's art of war and right away i'm like this why would i read a book by about you know racial slur against asian people and he's like, just read it. There, there's a lot of like really good tactical information in there about how just how to fight. And, and you need to understand that. And so I did read it back then. I didn't really get the value of the book. I reread it recently in the past few years. And um, 
in the book, there's all kinds of really smart tactical things, but one of them is basically like knowing yourself. If you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not fear the result of a thousand battles. If you know one or the other, you'll win half. If you don't know either, you won't win a single battle. And what, what I get from that is, is basically like controlling the rules of engagement. So I, I, again, cause I'm a big guy. I, I make this point of, I'm talking to someone like Chuck, if you and I were to go into a steel cage and fight, in an octagon would you kick my ass (laughs) well first of all i have post-concussion syndrome so i'd probably get a concussion if you look at me funny but just going into the scenario would you rather make the rules of that fight or would you rather let me make the rules right i'd rather make the rules for sure you probably have a better chance of winning you can say well arno has to have his hands tied behind his back or he can't you you know he can't do this or he can't do that um when you interact with someone their attitude that they bring is like their attempt to to set the rules of engagement. And when I was a a white power skinhead, everything I did was meant to provoke hostility. I wanted people to hate me. I wanted people to swing at me. If I got my ass kicked, that was fine as long as it devolved to violence. Yet people like Afro-American coworkers, Latino coworkers, a lesbian supervisor, a Jewish boss, all of these people refused to let me make the rules of engagement. And instead they said, Hey, I'm going to dictate our rules of engagement. And that is, this is how a human being treats another human being. You're hungry. I'm going to give you half of my sandwich. I don't care if you like me or hate me or what, I'm not going to sit here and watch a hungry person starve. And, and that's, that happened when a, a Afro-American coworker gave me half his lunch because he saw me hung over and starve and collapsed in a heap in the corner of the break room. Um, and he, and again, there was no mistake in what I was about. Like I had a shaved head, I had swastikas tattooed all over me. I was an outspoken racist. There was anybody's going to know what I'm about. So that kind of kindness, like blew all my bullshit out of the water. It, it basically like indicated how wrong I was. And it was a big factor leading up to me leaving. Yeah. Well, and then tell the story too. I know you've told the story a million times. Uh, but the, the, the black, the elderly black woman at the McDonald's, and this is like three months into you being in the white nationalism. And so you kind of had to keep this in the back of your mind for the seven years you're in that organization. But yeah, tell my audience that story real quick. It, it, it's funny. I, I, I've actually done talks for people. I don't know if there's lighters out, but they're like, Ooh, McDonald's story. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> the requests for it. Uh, the requests. So I, I, good story. It is a good story. So I, I'm a couple months into this, and uh, because I'm a gifted genius, I figured I get a swastika tattooed on this middle finger, the one that curly, currently is the um, the. So v. now it says love. Yeah, now it says love, and I I had this done by a guy. Love wins. It says for the audience uh, on audio only. He's yeah, got love I, wins on his on his fingers like his fists. That, that was tattooed by a guy that I helped to get out of the Ku Klux Klan in 2016. But underneath that V wow. on my right hand, I, I had a swastika tattooed when I was 16. And that was specifically so when people would get in my face about me being a racist, I could show them that swastika and be like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Like that, that was so I could repulse people to the point of violence. And I, at this time, I, all I ate was ramen noodles, like the 10 for a dollar brick kind. Um, and I did that so I could have more drinking money and, and the only, cause I'm a gifted genius. So <laughs> the only day of the week I'd eat anything different was on payday, which was Wednesday when I'd, I'd go get a, a big Mac from McDonald's. And, uh, I, 
my, my first payday at this place, I go get my Big Mac and I walk into this McDonald's and there's an elderly black woman behind the counter and she's got this beautiful smile that is just like shining like the sun for anybody who walks through that door. The, the sun shines on everybody. It doesn't care what color your skin is, how much money you got, don't got, skinhead, gangbanger, you know, saint, whatever. It shines, shines on everybody. And her smile was very much like that. And, and it was, uh, it made me very uncomfortable because I'm trying to hate black people. And here's this sweet old woman with this beautiful smile that just makes it very difficult to hate her. So I go order my food. I, I scurry out of there. A week goes by. I come in again. Uh, she remembers me this time. She remembers what I ordered. She's asked me about my day, talking about the weather. And I'm all the more uncomfortable. I get my food and I scurry out. After that, that between that payday and the next one, at Saturday night, I got that swastika tattooed. And so the next week when I walk in, I just freeze in the doorway. And I had this like involuntary sense of, I was like, I don't want her to see this tattoo. You're ashamed. I, I was ashamed of it. Absolutely. Even though I got it to offend everybody who looks like her, when, when I, I walked in and saw her there, I froze in the doorway. I didn't want to offend her. I was ashamed of it. Absolutely. And I actually sat there for a minute, like, doesn't anybody else work here? Like <laughs> to open somebody else and come to the counter. Nobody did. I, I for a minute, I'm thinking like, where's the next closest McDonald's? Uh, but it was December in Wisconsin and freezing and, and ultimately the siren song of the Big Mac prevailed. And I <laughs> went up to the counter and I, I'm thinking I'll just like keep my hand in my pocket. And she won't see it. Not thinking that I got to get my money out of my right hand pocket. So as I'm doing that, she sees the swastika and she just goes, she says to me the same way my grandma used to talk to me when I beat up my little brother. She goes, uh, what is that on your finger? And I, I, you know, and, and I, sh I would have said, all right, that's the symbol of my people because I'm an Aryan white man fighting against the blah, blah, blah. But instead of saying that, I just like look, I couldn't even look her in the eye. I looked down at my steel toed boots and I, I was a good foot taller than her, but I felt like six inches high when she asked me. And I just said, uh, it, it's nothing. And, and when she, when I looked back up and her eyes met, she said, I, she goes, you're a better person than that. I, I don't think that's who you are. And I was just like, can I sell my big bag, please? And I got it. And I scurried out of there and I, I wolfed it down. I went home. I got drunk as fast as I could. I went out in the streets and I attacked the first person I could find, like just trying to put some distance between me and this singularity of humanity I had just experienced. And uh, it, it, it didn't work ultimately, because even mm -hmm. though this happened in the first couple of months of my seven year involvement in white nationalism, it, it when a human being experiences something it's part of their being from that day forward you can't like erase it you can't if you could there'd be no no use for therapy um and, and so as as hard as i tried to suppress this experience i had uh it was still like um it, it i was unable to do so and it took more and more energy uh, and, and that was a, a big factor in the exhaustion that uh built up ultimately to lead me out Right. And also, I think some of your friends died. I mean, that's that's the ultimate. Well, you saw kind of the future of where this was going to go. You were either going to end up in jail or death, pretty much. Right. You get shot or killed in a fight or something. Yeah, I, I had uh, in 1990, there was, uh, uh, you know, I, I, always, I always say a dear friend of mine. And, and at the same time, like you can't really have a true friendship when you're immersed in all this hate and violence but um 
the nature of friendship and the nature of I think love between human beings, it really like it, it can actual actually take root and happen even in those kind of circumstances. And so I, I had a really close friend, as close as we could be under the circumstances, that uh, was exactly one year younger than me. And in 1990, he was out provoking hate and violence as I had taught him to do. Mm-hmm. When he got in a bar fight and one of the guys in the fight came back with a pistol and shot at him from a half a block away with a, it was a 25 caliber pistol that would probably cost him 50 bucks. And on the best day, you wouldn't be able to hit the broadside of a barn with it from that far. But on this day, uh, just that one shot went through my friend's back um, in between and went right through his heart and he died on the spot. Um. Every year on my birthday now, I think about him and I think about who he would be today. But at the time, I, it just drove me further, like deeper into what we call the movement. It, it just, it, it absolutely inflamed uh, all of my hatred, all my violence, um, and, and kind of drove me to even up the, the level of, of activism that I was doing at the time. But in uh, 1994, after my girlfriend and I had broke up and I'd become a single parent to my 18-month-old daughter, a second friend of mine was shot and killed in a, a similar scenario. And this was after a, a concert my band had played. And um, my friend who got killed in 94 was also lead vocals of another white power band. He had a couple little kids who grew up without their dad because he was out uh looking for for hate and violence and he found it and at that point i had lost count how many friends have been incarcerated so it was really like that kind of perfect storm that led me to finally walk away from it in in i think it was around april of 94 okay and the daughter obviously was a big piece of that too but so going back to that like would you like i don't understand what is the, the ultimate goal of these organizations because I mean, it's just to convert as many people as they, because I think I heard you say in the second book, something about we're going to like sending back people to where they came from. But like, if we think like native Americans, like what was the plan with that? Because they're, they're from America. So what, what, or I mean, was there other kinds of goals or like, I'm just trying to think like, what's the big picture. I mean, they're scary organizations, right? (laughs) It's, um, it's vocalized a little different from organization to organization, but basically what, what all violent extremism revolves around are, are, first of all, oppression narratives. Like our in-group is oppressed by this evil out-group, so we're going to fight back with everything we got to stop this oppression. And then uh, for what you're talking about now, the, the, they're, they're driven by return narratives. So in the, in the case of white nationalism, and again, this is all like completely erroneous from a historical point of view, but um, that you'll, you know, we're going to make Europe white again. Okay, well, Europe was overrun by Huns, overrun by Mongols, and overrun by Moors um, throughout the, <laughs> the, the history of that continent. And, and who knows, you know, how many times in the tens of thousands of years before then. So this idea of like when Europe ever was white, like did that ever exist? Hmm. Um, that's debatable in the first place. The second point is, is if you could put your finger on a time when Europe was white, uh, it was a, it was the dark ages. 
Like we, we were all burning each other as witches and fighting mm. everybody two feet away from us and enslaving each other. You know, it wasn't some Shangri-La where like, oh, we yeah. all look the same. So we're all going to live in this awesome, whiter and brighter world. And that was actually the language that uh, one of the groups I was involved with used. They called it the, the whiter and brighter world. And uh, the idea was, was at some point the, the white race again, whatever that is, that's it, it's also another thing that no one's ever been able to put their finger on to this day as to what the white race is or is not. But it, for the sake of argument, as the white race, as the, the movement defined it, would um, control the entire planet Earth. And, and simply by stopping supporting anyone who wasn't white, they would wither on the vine, so to speak. Like this idea that like without the white man feeding everyone and, and providing food and shelter and technology that no one else could survive. And that, that, that was one take on, on, you know, a, a utopian white future that, that one particular group I was involved with had. But if you look at all of them, they're, they're all going to be pretty similar. Like they, okay. they, they want, um, there was a lot of, in the eighties, there was a lot of thing about a, a white homeland in the Pacific Northwest. Where you know you you're gonna give us our white homeland, and if you don't give it to us, we'll take it, and uh, that that's what's gonna happen. And and you you see uh, separatists and nationalists have been doing that throughout history, if if not like along racial lines, but along some national or ethnic or religious lines. So it's not a new thing, but um, it, it's it's never. Uh, you know, it's a false return narrative, as I pointed out. There was never a, a point when Europe was all white, even if you could say that it was a pretty miserable time. Um, and, and then second of all, it really just flies in the face of, uh, of biology and, and zoology, which, which uh, is, is really plain as day. If you look at a rainforest or a coral reef or, uh, you know, a, the mountains or whatever, any kind of ecosystem, the diversity is is always the hallmark of a of the health of, a, of an ecosystem so anytime you have an ecosystem where there is no diversity you you have an ecosystem that's in crisis that's that's gonna um like miserably it's gonna have a catastrophic failure and have to rebuild itself and i, I believe human society is is uh plainly um included in, in that kind of dynamic right well and i think that's what makes it like our country so great is we do have all these people from different places and different backgrounds, different religions, different, different schools of thought. I think that's something that's feel like is lost right now. We want everyone to think a certain way. Like I like hearing different people's perspectives politically or, or, you know, musically or like sports or what, like everything. I'm just like, Oh, you're, so you're like a diehard Lions fan. Okay. Interesting. Like tell <laughs> me about bastards. that. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. It's I, I like I like that diversity of of all of it. I and well, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Chuck, because I I you're right. Like everybody's talking about diversity nowadays, but they're they're talking about it like just in at a very like base level of, of our complexions and, and you know, how our hair is and whatnot, it, which, which I think is really does not do justice to the complexity of human life. So I, I actually do a lot of diversity, equity and inclusion training, but it's not, um, not the conventional type that uh, has unfortunately come to be prominent of, of where we, everybody's kind of like branded with racial identities. And then, 
saddled with the, the consequences of those racial identities, mm-hmm. whether you're an oppressor or you're you're oppressed or things like that. Um, to me, the most important diversity of all is diversity of thought, because that diversity of thought is what proves the value of diversity, first of all, um, in that if, if you're making a case in a corporate setting, like, why does my company need to be diverse? Well, if you got 10 people from all the same background, all grew up in the same town, and, and they're all looking at a problem, you're going to have a lot more varied perspectives on how to solve a problem if you had 10 people from each corner of the earth looking at the same problem, because you're now you have a much wider uh, pool to draw from of experience to apply to this problem, to solve it, to be to innovate. Uh, so just from a business sense, it, it makes a lot of sense to have that diversity. But again, even when you're talking about that, you're not talking about well, you have 10 people who don't look the same. Um, you're, you're just, it, when you're fixated on that physical aspect, you're losing the importance of the thought aspect. Mm-hmm. And the thought aspect is what proves the, the fallacy of, of race. Like you, you and I don't, don't think and act alike because we have a, a similar complexion. And I, you know, that goes for whether your complexion is light, dark or whatever. And I, I, I spend a lot of time with people who don't look like me and I listen to them all. And I, when I listen to them all, I find that there are all sorts of different perspectives on every single issue uh, that, that our society is concerned about. And, and I think it's really important that we uh, humble ourselves and, and maybe step outside of our own ideological boxes a little bit to understand that uh, someone else's lived experience can lead them to a place where what they think makes a lot of sense doesn't make sense to us. And, and that's okay. Like that, mm-hmm. that's what diversity is. That's literally going back to the example of 10 people. That's why you want a diverse organization. So um, when we're talking about diversity, let's talk about diversity of thought and let, let's encourage that at the same time, uh, making sure that, uh, that, you know, there's, there's a, a fair degree of representation and inclusion in, in what we're doing. Sure. I love it. That's, that's great. Well, so like with prevention now, because I know like a lot of what your organization does is you try to like kind of rescue people from the white supremacy and white nationalist groups and things like that. But like, what about just preventing it from happening in the first place? And you say like hurt people, hurt people. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, it was interesting at the beginning, you brought up jihad. I was like, that's a really good point. Cause that's like a similar, uh, it's hate, it's hate. And so how can you just help kids Go like what would have helped you to think go down a different path, and and that it would have nothing to do with hurting people. Uh, how, what, is there something that you think can help kids and teenagers? Yeah, in a broad sense, it, it's essentially um, helping people uh, deal with trauma that they've incurred in their life and and process it in a healthy way. Um, so I, I'm a Buddhist nowadays, and like Buddhism 101 is if you live, you suffer. Like that's that's I agree with that. yeah. <laughs> not not a whole lot of getting around that, but um, understanding like, where the suffering comes from in Buddhism, we we believe a lot of our suffering comes from our attachments. Like if I didn't have an attachment to being warm and comfortable in my house in in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in April, I <laughs> I wouldn't suffer if I did if I could if I could deal you know if I could somehow uh, elevate myself above this need to be physically comfortable. Um, but it, it's, if, if we can help people find healthy ways to process their trauma, the likelihood of that trauma being transferred to someone else, i.e. hurt people, hurt people is diminished. So in my case, 
and, and a really important point is that um, as amazing as, as humanity is, one of the most amazing things is that although we have all this commonality and we have way more in common than different, at the same time, we are every single one of us, all 8 billion some odd people on this planet are unique individuals. That and not no two are alike. We even identical twins raised in the identical uh, environment don't um, aren't identical when it comes down to uh, their thoughts and their preferences and things like that. So respecting that individuality, we we need to understand that what works for me as a kid might not work for another kid. Mm-hmm. So we need to have a broad offering of ways for people to process trauma in a healthy way. So the arts are, are a go-to means of that, all forms of art. Um, music is, is another way that people can process trauma. In my case, I think um, sports is another way. Mm-hmm. I think uh, martial arts would have been a saving grace for me. Had my parents, uh, I, again, I lived in this rich suburb where we were the poor kids. And all my rich friends all took Taekwondo and karate. And I was like really jealous and like obsessed with all things remotely martial arts related. And my parents couldn't afford that. So um, it, it had, I been able to like really get into a, a good martial arts program and stay in it. I think that would have been a, the, the right outlet for my aggressions while building like a, a, a real uh, genuine sense of self-worth and value the, the other element in, in preventing violent extremism beyond the um, hurt people, hurt people piece is that there, there are basic human needs that violent extremist groups will prey upon to, to bring people into their groups. And depending where you are in the world, those hmm. needs may be higher or lower on Maslow's hierarchy. Oh, okay. So in, in in places in Africa and the Middle East, there's some places where people don't have food and water and shelter. And so ISIS or Al-Shabaab will come and say, yeah, we'll give you those things, but you're going to come fight for us. So that, that's, an, that's an example of exploiting a very low-level base need of, of a human being. In the, the so-called Western world, in, in North America, in Europe, we, the, the circumstances of people who um, don't have those base needs taken care of are, are much fewer. You're not going to find as many people right. in that situation. So Didn't you they, find kids who are bullied or something? Isn't that a big part exactly. of exactly? So we're we're looking at like those higher level needs that are exploited in that hierarchy, and, and those are a need for identity, a need for purpose, and a need mm-hmm. for belonging. Those are three basic human needs that all human beings have. Mm-hmm. Most human beings find a healthy way to answer those needs. Again, it might be art, music, sports, activism, academics, whatever. But if you don't have a healthy answer to those needs, violent extremist ideology can swoop in and be like, here's your identity. Here's your purpose. Here's your belonging. And so it, it, uh, to way to prevent violent extremism is to uh, institute programs in schools that cultivate healthy answers to those needs. One of the programs I'm involved with is called Serve to Unite. And it basically does that through arts-driven service learning and global engagement. So we would ask kids in high school, middle school, like, hey, what, what, do you, what do we need to fix in this society? And there's no shortage of answers for that. Um, and, and there's over the years, our, our students have uh, addressed like every issue in society you can imagine. And what we do is we like facilitate a solution-based approach to that uh, problem 
So, for instance, after uh, Mike Brown was killed uh, by a police officer in um, St. Louis, a lot of our students were like, we want to address the, this issue between uh, community and police. Well, the way we did that was we brought uh, uniform cops into the classrooms and developed a way that the kids could anonymously ask these cops whatever the questions they wanted to ask. And they were difficult questions like, hmm. you know, why is it always brown and black people getting shot? Why are there more cops in my neighborhood than this other neighborhood? You know, everything you ever wanted to ask a cop but were afraid to. And the, the police would, would very frankly uh, answer these things from their own perspective and also from the perspective as, of the police department in a broader sense. And what ended up happening was we had a dialogue between cops and kids so they could really both see the humanity in each other and both mm. kind of understand where each other were coming from. Right. And then we had a live drawer, like do a mural of the whole thing as the discussion was going on. And then that mural became part of an exhibit that went around the city basically saying like this kind of dialogue is possible. This is the benefits of having it. Let's do it more often. Um, wow. I love that because I feel like right now the problem is it's either blamed on the police 100% or it's blamed on black people. 100%. It's either, you know, blue lives matter, black lives matter. And it's like, I don't think it's, I mean, forgive the term. I don't think it's a black and white. Right. I mean, I think right. like, there could be better training for police for totally. sure. And there could be better training for citizens and not just black people. I mean, all citizens, like kids, like being taught how to like get arrested, how to, how, what happens when you get pulled over? Like, I don't think I knew this until maybe my twenties or thirties, but when you get pulled over, you're supposed to put your hands on the wheel. Most right, people try to right. go into their glove box because they're trying to get their uh, registration and stuff. Right, right. That makes the cop nervous because they don't know if you're reaching for a gun or something. So they want you to have your hands on the steering wheel. So when they walk up, they know where your hands are. And then they'll tell you, you know, get your registration or whatever. Like they'll tell you what to do so they can see what you're doing. So like th little things like that, I feel like we could teach our citizens. I love the idea of the dialogue. That's like, totally. I, why isn't that something that... And, and what are your thoughts on just how the media handle these handles these kinds of situations? Because what you're saying, a dialogue, I don't hear that. I don't hear that on either side about the media talking about that. Yeah, I, I, I don't either as, as much as I'd like. Um, the So regarding media, um, and, and I'm very like, I want to be very intentional and mindful about how I talk about media because yeah. as a uh, white nationalist 30 years ago. Yeah. We, we would never say the word media. It would always be the Jewish media. Like that, that was how you right. had to say that. And you had to like cast it as this Jewish propaganda machine. And it, it's funny because nowadays, if you're talking to someone on the far right, they're going to, they're, they won't say media either. They'll say the liberal media. And, and they do it in the exact same uh, kind of dynamic that we yeah. did with saying Jewish media. And if you talk to someone on the far left, They'll say the corporate media, Fox News, or, say yeah, Fox the, News. the white supremacist, capitalist, oppressor media or whatever. Yeah. You know, it always has to be qualified in that way. What's really interesting is like um, they both, <laughs> according to either poll, the New York Times is the devil. <laughs> like, you know, the, the righties are, oh, it's so liberal, blah, blah, blah. The lefties are like, it's corporate capitalist, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, that's a good sign for me that I'm going to be more, you know, that this this media outlet has, has a little more objectivity and that they, they piss off everybody. But um, <laughs> that is well, kind of the goal of media in, in general, though. I think this is what people forget. The, the, 
I think the goal of media used to be to report the news, but I think what that happened was there's so many media outlets, it got more competitive. And I feel like now their goal is to make money and they don't make money if people aren't watching and fearful. And so I feel like both sides, I mean, you could tell me I'm wrong, but I feel like both sides try to pump in fear. It's just, what's your brand of fear? Are you scared of COVID? Are you scared of, uh, you know, white supremacy? Are you scared of, uh, jihad, uh, terrorists? I, I mean, right. I, you know, they're going to try to pump something to, to scare you. So you keep watching. I, I totally agree with you. It's that, that's what it boils down to now is it's all clickbait. Like that's how they get paid. I, I had a, a years ago, I forget what the whole context was, but some reporter reached out to me asking about like um, white nationalists and guns. And we did a big, I it was on the phone with them for an hour. I told them everything about back in the day and how we were all armed to the teeth and blah, blah, blah. And then a week later, this, this guy produces a headline that says like former white nationalists says white nationalist groups are, are arming themselves to execute gay people. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's not what I told you by any stretch. Like I, I did not indicate that, but they like kind of twisted everything I had this hour long talk yeah. of all this context. They just like strip it all to the, get this really sensational clickbaity head headline that's not helping anybody it's it's not uh certainly not helping gay people to tell them that there's white supremacists around every corner and under every rock waiting to shoot them mm-hmm. um and, and yet this is and you're right all all media does this whether it's right wing or left wing they all do this like bullshit clickbait practice that's how they make money um and it's it's sad it's uh it's intimidating but I, my take on the media is my same as the take on government in that I believe both the media and the government are manifestations of our collective social consciousness. And if our collective social consciousness is one of fear and loathing and uh, distrust and separatism, like that's what we're going to get from both of these things. They're, they're essentially mirrors hmm. that, that uh, and, and media, like more so now than ever before, CNN Fox News, whatever, they pull their stories from what's trending on Twitter or what's trending on, you know, whatever social media platform. So we're literally telling them what we want to see and they're just showing it to us. So in order to, to sort this out, and it's unfortunately not an easy answer, but we, I think we all, and again, this is my Buddhism speaking, but I, I think we all need to start inward and like look at our relationship with ourselves and, and make peace with ourselves and, and generate a sense of inner peace and only from there can you work to build outer peace. If, if you have this constant turmoil within yourself where you, you don't trust yourself, you won't forgive yourself, you hate yourself at times, you're, you're, you're greedy, you're jealous, you're scared. Like you, you, how are you supposed to go function with, with other people without addressing those issues first? Right. And then I think the next step would be to go out into the world and talk to people. Cause that's what I, I love totally. to travel. I don't know about you, but like, I love to totally travel. Love to. And one of my favorite things about traveling is like going to a restaurant or a bar or somewhere, uh, just anywhere store and just talking to people that live there or people that are visiting there and just talking to different people from different backgrounds and just hearing all sorts of things. And then you're like, Oh, okay. Like I thought, you know, like I remember going down to the South and I was yeah. really interested because I was like, you know, I just, I hear all these things. The South is so racist. So I'm thinking I'm going to go on the South. I'm seeing all these, con- I'm going to see all these Confederate flags and like, you know, terrible racist things. 
And I mean, I saw a couple things that really made me cringe, but oh, by and large, it was like not a lot of racist stuff. Most of the people I talked to didn't appear racist. I mean, maybe they go into their uh, homes and, and to say different things, but I mean, they, they seem like really good people. It was very interesting. I had this stereotype in my mind of Southern people and it was the real South that I visited did not fit that at all. I, I am so with you, Chuck, I'm totally with you. I, I love to travel, uh, paraphrasing Mark Twain. He had a great quote, uh, saying that some of the effect of travel is the cure for prejudice. And, and I, I truly believe that. And, and to emphasize further what you said, that, that aspect of interacting with people face to face is, is absolutely, um, irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so uh, it's so vital. I, I think that our, our salvation lies in that personal interaction. I, I had actually uh, I shut down my Facebook account a couple of years ago in the summer of 20, actually, because things were just getting so ridiculous. I'm like, I can't I have a life to live. I can't be on Facebook all the time, like ping pong and back and forth between the angry lefties and the angry righties. Um, and, and I find that the, the more I get away from social media, I still do Instagram and it's, uh, you know, octopus pictures and cat pictures and food pictures and surfing and maybe some girly pictures here and there, but it's, I, you know, I'm not into the politics and I'm not into all the the fighting and whatnot, but I, I find that social media tends to distort our lens that, that we see other people through. Whereas on social media, I'm just like, oh, that guy's profile. Yep, he's a Trumper. Yeah, he's got he's got some bullshit to say. Or this person's a, a big wokester. They're going to have some bullshit <laughs> to say. Um, and and when, when you just beat uh, someone face to face. Yeah. And, and you you don't know where they're coming from politically. Right. And you just have a conversation with them. Then if you later find out like, oh, my God, they vote for that guy who I think is the devil incarnate. But but they're nice. They're they're like good people. Like what now now you're starting to see the complexity of life, and, right. and you, you have some buy-in. You got some skin in the game in, in yeah. your actual interaction with this person to um, to try to understand them. And and I think if if we once we stop trying to understand people, like we're we're going to be pretty screwed. No, that's that's exactly right. So, and I think one of the reasons I reached out to you because I was just like. I keep hearing like white supremacy, white nationalists. Like I, I keep hearing a lot of that, those words being thrown around. And I was like, I want to talk to someone who was actually in this organization, like what actually was a white supremacist. So you, you have a different perspective. Uh, I mean, again, we're, we're two white people talking, so we don't know what it's like to be a minority uh, or experience racism, but your perspective as coming from like being in the white uh, uh, supremacist organizations to like the world now, like do you, how race is have things gotten worse or better or the same in terms of racist racism? Cause I feel like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to think. Sometimes I think like we've come so far and then other times I feel like we're going backwards. I, so first off, it, and you make a good point. Like it, it's, um, it's high time that, uh, race and racism wasn't just like strictly defined by a bunch of white people deciding <laughs> what no what yeah and i just mean and all that but i would love time, i would like, love to have somebody um uh, from you know a minority that is in an organization or something that that come on my show i mean anybody's welcome on my show i don't sure. i'm not going to discriminate but i did i did want to get your perspective on it just because you've seen the full-on like these are people that you know they want to you know white power for everything 
And then now you're seeing like the, the, the real world right now with the news is, is, is white supremacy. Is it just more underground? Is it like, I mean, a lot of things get labeled white supremacy and I'm just, I want to know like what you're like, do you feel like that is white supremacy? Like a lot, some people think like anybody that voted for Trump is a white supremacist. And I I don't know what, like, I want to hear your thoughts on that. You froze. Oh, there you go. All right. We're back. Yeah. Um, discussion in this area that everything i have to say on the subject of white supremacy it, of course it's informed by my past and my experience but it's, yeah. it's informed every from listening to people who don't look like me mm-hmm. so it's so what what i have to say is not like from my privilege bubble or my toxic fragile whiteness or whatever buzzword is being thrown around about it. <laughs> it it's it's from those are buzzwords, you're right. Who, who who don't look like me. And along those lines, there's a brilliant book called Racecraft. Uh the subtitle is The Soul of Inequality in American Life. It's written by two world-renowned sociologists who are Afro-American. Their names are Karen and Barbara Fields. And the they're position in racecraft is they they name it racecraft to make a comparison between race and witchcraft in Hmm. that it's they're both like concocted ideologies that that somehow hold like way greater sway on our society than they should and and their position basically is that race is is bullshit there's no scientific basis for it um any anthropologist will tell you that uh the the whole thing about lighter skin, darker skin, uh, you know, the shape of your nose, your head, whatever, th- those are all phenotypes. It's just uh, they're genetic traits uh, that determine how we look. They, they don't determine how we think. They, they shouldn't determine our place in society. They shouldn't determine our worth or our value. And um, in racecraft, they make the point that white supremacy has never been about simply white people being in charge. It has always been about which white people are in charge. So to that end, a good example of this is um, pre-Civil War South, 8% of white people owned slaves. The other 92% were certainly better off than enslaved Africans, but not by a whole lot. If, if you had a, a, a specter, a hierarchy or a spectrum of all the, the populace of the white or of the south pre-civil war you would have the enslaved africans the so-called free whites and then way up here are the eight percent who are plantation owners so again this is way more of a class thing than it's a race thing and the, the the idea of white supremacy is first of all and this is something that's lost way too often nowadays when people talk about white supremacy now it seems almost as if they believe it that, that they believe that white people are different and that white people are superior enough to dominate the entire planet. I, I don't believe that. I believe white supremacy is bullshit. It's, it's, it's a lie from day one and it's a lie today. And, and the, the real two foundational lies of it are, are, first of all, that like there is some kind of homogenous white hive mind and that all white people act in each other's interests, which is not true. It's never been true. Um, going back to police violence, uh, there are slightly more unarmed white people killed every year by police than actual unarmed black people. It's a much smaller percentage of the population, and that's that's a huge issue. But the 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 point I want to make is 
is um, ask, name me one white person who got killed by police in the past 10 years. Like, no one can. You, you, you can rattle off a big, long list, all like Mike Brown, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. You, you just go on and on and on. And every one of those incidents were atrocities. But the, the point is, is, because there is no white solidarity, because white people don't go, oh, my God, a white person got shot. I'm going to go march. <laughs> like I'm going to go protest. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's that doesn't happen, and it, it's never happened. Even if you go back to the founding of this country, George Washington signed a, a, a naturalization law in 1790 that said you could become a naturalized citizen of the United States only if you are a land-owning white man. It, it wasn't hey anyone white can come in here and be naturalized. It's like no, you have to own land and be white. Huh. So th- th- that that's classically interesting. How, that's how how white supremacy has worked. The the lie of it is that hey, all white people are together. They're all going to look out for white people and work mm. for white people's interests. That was that's that was the the establishing lie of white supremacy, and it's still a lie today. In that, um, I I worked with a guy in rural Georgia who I helped get out of the Klan. The guy who did this tattoo. Uh, that guy can't go walking into the board of Northwestern mutual life and like expect to get a job because he's white. <laughs> like he's, he's a, he's a poor redneck, you know, who's just coming off a methamphetamine addiction. And <laughs> he, he doesn't have all these advantages right. that everybody's like casting okay. on him because of the color right. of his skin. So yeah. um, th- that this presents a problem as far as all sorts of problems, like across the board, uh, but the, we're going back to white nationalism. The biggest problem it presents there is that there's essentially two steps to create a white nationalist. Step one is the potential recruit has to identify as white. And believe it or not, in the late 80s, most so-called white people didn't. If I went up to, to Joe pissed off white kid and said, hey, white man, he'd be like, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm American. I'm my grandpa was from Germany. Like uh, we're, we're Lutheran. Like <laughs> they're not going to essentially, they're not going to uh, necessarily identify themselves as white by default. Hmm. So I need to get them to do that before I can get them to step two, which is to make them feel persecuted because hmm. they're white. So nowadays, tragically, a, a lot of very well-meaning people are, are walking through those first two steps. We, we have people like, like lecturing the Congress of the United States going, you're white and everything wrong with this country is your fault because you're oppressors and you're privileged and you're fragile and, and you're benefiting from racism. So now they're, they're doing the exact same process that I did to recruit white nationalists. And this wow, is an, atti- this really is an attitude that is, is becoming prevalent in our schools. To, to where um, everybody's being divided along racial lines and uh, everyone's being kind of taught to, to think in these racial terms when the, the truth is, as I understand it, is, is the more racialized the society is, the more conducive it is to actual white nationalist groups and the more uh, the, the constructs that support actual white supremacy are, are supported. So I, I think white supremacy sucks. Uh, I, I think it's a lie. And I think race sucks also. 
And so I, I'm very intentional about not doing anything to, uh, to maintain those contra- constructs. At the same time, we need to bear witness to the suffering that race has caused for 500 years. We can't just go, hey, that's all over now and slap our fingers and be, hey, race is done. Like you, you can't, you, you have to, you have to look at, at history with openness and with honesty and admit that um, it's been written by the victors. And there's a lot of people whose voices haven't been heard in a historical perspective. But I think the, the impetus for doing that is because those voices are our fellow human beings. That's why we, we need to bear witness to that suffering, not because those voices are a certain color. And, and maintaining the, 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 this construct of race that is the, the foundation of the problem in the first place. Uh, no, that, uh, that makes all, a lot of sense. I mean, it, cause that's what I, I just see. Like it's, it's both sides. It's like, it's like they're painting this picture and I would rather just treat if everyone could just treat people good, regardless of, and I, I think that goes back to what I was saying when, when you go out and you actually interact with people, of different backgrounds or, or, or races or religions or whatever, like you'll see, like, it's kind of like what you realized when you were, I think that was a, a point in your book when you were dropping your daughter off at school and you yeah. saw people of other races with their kids and you saw like, Oh, they're just like me. They're, I love my daughter. My daughter loves me just like this uh, black guy with his son love. You know, there, there's, I could have hurt these people. And why would I do that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And, and that's why connecting on that human level. And, and, and that's, that's how we bear witness to the suffering. R- right now, we're, we're kind of told like, well, you have to bear witness to their suffering because they're black. Where I'm like, well, they're, they're, you know, they're suffering because people call them black for 500 years, when really they're human beings, like we are. And that's that's why all this this horror yeah. of slavery and genocide and colonialism and imperialism right. is wrong is because we're all human beings, not because race is, is real and race is valid. It, it race isn't valid. It, it's a right. it's a it's well, as bullshit as witchcraft is. I don't think anyone's going to deny the racist history of our country. I mean, but it's it's just interesting to me because everybody has a different opinion or perspective or a different life. Uh, you know, even with people, black people within black people, like there's black people that I hear that say they've never experienced racism, which I'm like suspicious of. And then there's black people that say that see the world is completely, totally racist. And so you have to like take everyone's perspective differently. Right. And I mean, I think like it goes back to what you're saying too, about the class. I mean, I think that's a bigger indicator than race. Right. I mean, if you grew up as a a rich black person or a poor white person, that's going to be very different. Absolutely. It, it, it's interesting because I, I, I'm, I'm very much a, a capitalist. I, I feel that uh, capitalism is it's imperfect and uh, it certainly has its warts and there's, there's all sorts of things that can improve as far as capitalism goes. I, I'm a big fan of the idea of conscious capitalism and uh, I, I like seeing um, the, the private sector becoming a lot more mindful about the impacts of, of, you know, what, what doing business is and, and looking to make sure that uh, everybody gets a, a, a better piece of it. But I, I'm about um, creating wealth rather than, than redistributing it. And at the same time, I, love that. I, I do, I do acknowledge and I understand um, a, a lot of the people that I cite that I'm listening to, i.e. Uh, Karen and Barbara Fields, are, are very left-leaning. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Field sisters are, are basically uh, 
very close to straight up Marxist. But that that's their point they're making is that class and not race has been the driving factor behind uh, slavery and everything else for the past 500 years. So I, I, again, this is an example of me listening to someone who I don't politically jibe with entirely, but I can, we, we can both see like the same root causes of what's happening here. And again, that that's how I think uh, problems get solved. So it's mm-hmm. it, 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 like you said, it, you, you got to listen to people and understand that not everyone thinks it's that way because um of how they look or, and a lot of times if you listen to people, you're going to be really surprised. Uh, I, as, as you read in gift of our wounds, one of my closest friends is a Punjabi man named Pardeep Singh Kalika. Uh, Pardeep's a Sikh and uh, a lot of people would say Sikh. And I was going to say, isn't it Sikh? <laughs> it, it's actually Sikh. In, in, Punjabi, oh, okay. in Punjabi, they, they pronounce it uh, Sikh the same way we would say, you know, I got sick, whatever. Um, but uh with party, uh, him and I do a lot of talks together. And one of our things is we always, uh, will stop in at the local Sikh temple, wherever we're speaking. And, uh, part of the Sikh faith is a communal meal called Lunger. And I'm always, it's always like amazing vegetarian Indian food, which I'm not a vegetarian, but it's always great food. And I'm like, yeah, hey, if there's longer up there, like, let's go sit down and eat and talk. And, uh, the last one we did was at the Gurdwara in Orlando and uh, there at the Gurdwara, there were a bunch of uh, six there who were all like kind of biker getups with like the vests and all the patches and whatnot. They told us that they're from the, the sick riders of America. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I, I, I personally hate Harley Davidson's because I don't like <laughs> intentionally loud vehicles. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to hold that against these guys. Uh, they're awesome guys. They like, they ride over the country together. They have big rides of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and they do all kinds of charity stuff they raise money for like women's shelters and um they, they do a lot of great work and as i'm talking to one of these guys i i moved to tell the story about how much my father loves his sick dentist in, in astoria or a sick doctor in astoria oregon and i i'm, I'm very used to being in like social justice left-leaning circles so anytime i'm going to talk about my dad i'm just kind of conditioned to be like well you know he's a big trumper but, <laughs> you know, but let me explain like, well, how he's still a nice guy. You know, that, that I, that's, that's kind of where I'm always coming from. And as I'm talking to this guy about this, he, he's like, well, I'm a big Trumper. And I'm, I'm like, oh shit. What? <laughs> oh, no. He's like, yeah, I think Donald Trump's great. And, and he goes on to tell me that, and, and I, I, again, I didn't want to like get into the whole thing with him. I, I didn't want to explain like why I think Donald Trump's not great. But I, I did want to hear this guy's thoughts, and, and he, his exact words were that he never felt as as included and as part of the, the United States society as when Donald Trump was president. And this is a brown dude with a big beard and a turban. Huh. Like that that's and, and I, I tell this story to like my my progressive friends who are many of whom are, are white. And they're like, what? No. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. This is exactly what he said. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm saying. Everybody's got a different perspective. And, and we got to respect all over the place. It's like you people assume, OK, this person is, the, is you know, this race or this religion. They must think this way. They must have right. this political party. And it doesn't always match up that way. I think that's just as dangerous as totally. as making as being a racist. 
Absolutely. I mean, that is racist in a way, isn't it? I mean, to oh, it, assume it somebody's totally is. background is a certain way or it totally is. And, and that's, that's what we need to, to move beyond. And, and one of the points I, I like to make to my, my liberal friends and, and I'm, if, if I needed to be pigeonholed politically, I'd call myself a left-leaning moderate. Like okay. I, I thought you said at one point, I thought I heard you say on a podcast or in your book or somewhere, you said far left. So I was like, oh, <laughs> maybe you've come more to the middle. It, I, I went, I did my, my uh, college stint from 2007 to 2010, and I, I was a community education major. And so I came out of college all like, yeah, fuck white privilege and all your blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm an anti-racist. And then I like get out in the real world, start listening to people, start working in the real world and seeing like, oh, you know, that approach doesn't not only does it not help. A lot of times it makes things worse. Right. And well, so, I think yeah. if you're extreme on any side is, is bad. Like totally. it's so interesting that you went from white supremacist <laughs> to campaigning for Obama. I'm like reading your book and I'm just like, wow, this is so fascinating. <laughs> and then, you know, but then you kind of realize you're like, well, actually, I don't know that Obama, he, you know, he didn't really live up to my expectation. Like you thought he was going to like save things and, and change a lot of things. And it, it wasn't as great as you thought. Right. Yeah. So, it, it's, it, and, and I, I don't think to this day, I don't think a lot of that is, is Obama's fault. I think it's just the, the no, state. it's, it's the, it's the political condition itself. Sure. But politicians I, in general are not, nobody should worship any politician. Exactly. And there's no politician who's going to come in and just be like, woo, everything is fixed. Like, and, no. I, I, and, and Obama got me thinking that, that that was possible. And, and, and I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because I think like aspiration is, is very, very important. But at the same time, when we get tunnel vision and being like, okay, Obama's the answer and everybody who doesn't like him is the devil. Like now, who do we sound like? Yeah. <laughs> now it sounds like the Trump people that say exactly. Trump is the answer and anyone who doesn't like him is terrible. Exactly. But, so so it, like, yeah. Going back to like that, that's the kind of the, the point I, I want to make to people in that, I've, I've had Trumpers tell me that I have Trump derangement syndrome, which, which apparently means that I'm, I'm mentally ill because I don't like their boy. And, and that that's basically, it's gaslighting. It, it's saying like, Oh, you're crazy. If you think this way, you're mentally ill, you're crazy. And, and I, when I talk about people, this to people on the left, they're like, yeah, you know, all those horrible Trumpers. And I'm like, you know what? Let me tell you a story about the, the Punjabi guys who think Trump's awesome. And then they go, oh, well, they must have internalized oppression. <laughs> and, and, and now they have their own version of uh, gaslighting that yeah. these people who don't fit their ideological box. And, and I, I was just having this discussion in, in San Diego at the, the film screening. And, and they're like, well, yeah, no, but that's, there's, there's valid science behind internalized depression. I'm like, no, there's not. <laughs> it is every bit as much bullshit it's, as Trump but, derangement syndrome. Right. Well, isn't like, it? But see, I always try to learn from people. I, 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 I try yeah, to, thank you. Um, you know, because on the, the right, you've got like the QAnon people, which is, that is a little, that's like almost, yeah, that's like not even just a philosophy. That's like, you're reading false information a lot of times. And then on the left, you've got like the Marxists and stuff. And, but I try to listen to people. I mean, I have friends who, I don't know that they would fall into either one of those categories, but I have conservative friends and I have, uh, you know, people who voted for Bernie Sanders and stuff. And I try to understand where they're coming from. And I think it helps me to go to, to come really right back to more to the middle. I just keep coming back to the middle. Absolutely. I'm with you too. That's uh, going back to my spiritual foundation. Like Buddhism is known as the middle path. 
uh, in, in many ways. And, and, and ironically, amongst Buddhists, there's a lot of them who are like, no, we need to be woke and liberate <laughs> our people of color, brothers and sisters. But like, okay, well, that's not how I interpret it, but um, that's all right. And, and then and it's, I, there's, there's very right-wing leading Buddhists also, my, my dad being one of them. Um, so it, it's no one has all the answers. I, we just got to listen to each other, learn from each other, uh, and, and if not occupy the middle, like create some more space in the middle where people can be and, and stop this whole, like, you're with us, you're, you're against us. Uh, right. Instead of trying to convince somebody to believe what you believe, try to understand what they believe and why they believe it. Exactly. I, I think that's because you'll learn and I, to me. That's why I do the totally. podcast partly because I like hearing people's different perspectives, people's different life stories. I mean, I was telling my girlfriend yesterday, I was like, I hope people don't think like, you know, I have too many white people on my show. I don't really think <laughs> of that. Cause like, I, it's probably cause a lot of musicians and right. stuff, but I was like, I feel, you know, I'd love to have more people of different backgrounds and, and more women too. I have a lot of white men, right. but, um, but I love hearing people's different stories. And this was been a lot of fun listening to your stories and your background and your perspectives on things. I think it's really eye opening, And, uh, it's, it sounds like you're doing a lot of great work. Thanks, Chuck. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I uh, do a number of uh, directions nowadays, but the main one is I work with a group called Parents for Peace. Uh, people can find out more about them at parentsforpeace.org with the number four. Parents okay. for Peace is a resource for anyone who's concerned about a loved one getting mixed up in any kind of violent extremism. Okay. Um, we have uh, the the lead uh, white nationalist interventionist for Parents for Peace is a man named Chris Buckley, the guy who did this tattoo for me, who I helped to get out of the Klan in 2016. So now his main job, 20 is his full time job, is uh, assisting people to get out of hate groups and okay. assisting their loved ones also. And and Chris moves works very closely with another dear friend of mine named Mubin Sheikh, who's a former jihadi. And Mubin is the lead for uh, people getting mixed up in violent Islamist groups. And it's amazing to see how Chris and Mubin like work as a team to show the similarities between behind those ideologies. Yeah. I never thought of that, but but you're right. Those are very two very similar things, which is They're like identical. you don't you don't hear that because like you if you're looking at a news channel you watch. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like they're going to paint one group as the other. They're both bad groups. We, I think we can all agree on that. So you're doing some great work. I will put that website in the show notes. Can people awesome. donate to that? Is it a, a charity or? Yeah. Um, so Parents for Peace is a, a federally recognized 501c3. Ta okay. Donations to Parents for Peace are fully tax deductible and it helps uh, to pay the salary. People like Chris and Mubin. So if people are in a position to financially support, that's huge. Uh, again, parents4peace.org with the number four. There's also a toll-free national helpline there that people can call uh, to get help if, if they're worried about a loved one or if they need help themselves. Okay, that's awesome. Well, I think, again, you're doing great work. I appreciate you taking the time to come on my show, and uh, I'll get this episode out soon. Sounds great, Chuck. Thanks again for having me on. All right, thanks. I'll talk to you later. Cheers. Bye. Well, wow, just wow. You know, I, I want to. I wanted to keep it going, but I didn't want to take any any more of Arno's time. He was extremely generous with his time, and I hope to have him back on the show because, again, for as long as we talked and as much as we covered, I feel like there was a lot more to discuss. Um, but what are your thoughts? Let me know. I'd love to hear your opinions. Write me a comment on social media or on YouTube, or send me a private message if you feel more comfortable with that. Or you can reach out to Arno if you have a question for him. But check out his books. 
He has two books, My Life After Hate and The Gift of Our Wounds. And the last one is also on Audible. And you can listen to that just like you listen to this podcast. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, Check out some of my other episodes I've had on some other authors. And I hope to have on more authors and and people like this to discuss social issues because I find it fascinating. Uh, So make sure to subscribe so that you can catch future episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. And remember to shoot for the moon.